Hello and welcome to this episode of the A to Z of Tech podcast. Somehow, and I'm not quite sure how, we've made it all the way through the alphabet to S. As usual, I'm your host Louise and I'm really excited to say that in this episode we're going to be looking at space. Uh, now this is a topic which has certainly been making the headlines recently with things like space travel, space exploration, really beginning to capture the public imagination once again. I have to say as well that for me, um, space is actually probably one of the topics that, that we're most familiar with as well, so really excited for today's session. For this episode, I am delighted to be joined by two brilliant guests. On the line, we have Andrew Bacon, who is co-founder and CTO of SpaceForge, a startup which specializes in developing small satellites. And with me in the studio is Dinesh Patel. He's an aerospace engineer with 15 years experience in the industry, having worked with numerous aerospace companies within both the UK and Europe. And he's now a senior manager here in PwC UK's space team. Thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, so, Andrew, if I might turn to you first, if that's OK, I'd be really interested in hearing a little bit about your own background and what it has sort of originally drove your interest in space. Brilliant. Yes. Thank you, Louise. Uh, yes. Yeah, so my name is Andrew Bacon. As you said, I'm the, the chief technology officer of a, of a startup company called SpaceForge Limited. I've been in the space industry for 11 years now. Uh, I've worked from in very small companies, uh, medium-sized companies, and very large companies as well. So I've sort of seen the full spectrum of what can be done in the space industry. Uh, in my past, I've worked on future moon and Mars landing programs. I spent a lot of time working in advanced concepts teams. Uh, why did I get into the space industry? I, it, I mean, the usual answer is space is cool. Uh, it cannot be denied. And I started out as an electronic engineer as well. Um, but you know, space has always been um, one of my major passions. And I didn't, when I first started out, when I was a student, I did not realize that the UK even had a space industry. I did not know it was an option. Uh, and I was very lucky to have been involved in working with some student groups and entering some competitions, which got me to go to space conferences in the UK, where I realized suddenly there's this, actually, there are, dozens and, and well now there are hundreds of space companies in the UK uh, so it really is a, a, a real career choice that you can take so uh, that's that's kind of my path. Brilliant and actually the UK space sector is definitely a topic we're going to be returning to later in the conversation and of course I think all of us agree that space is cool which is exactly why we're here talking about it today. Um, so I suppose on a slightly irreverent uh, question maybe to start us off with there seems to be a bit of a kind of a new space race developing between um, a variety of, of billionaires. So if you had to choose a billionaire to go into space with, which billionaire would you would you choose? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, yeah, what, I mean, what, what are the options we've got for getting into space uh, as a person? So you've got the um, yeah, Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit, uh, sorry, Virgin Galactic. Uh, say Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic uh, with the, the space plane. You've got Jeff Bezos with his uh, suborbital rocket, um, the new Shepard. And but then you've also got Elon with, uh, with the Falcon 9. Um, but personally, if you were to ask me which one of those would I be happy to fly on, it would be none of those. It would be the, <laughs> I would pick the Russian Soyuz uh, rocket because that is the one that's basically as a rocket design has not changed since the late 60s 
uh, and they, they don't really change the way it's made. It's extremely reliable. It's been the main way that people have been getting into space uh, for the last 40 years, certainly since the space shuttle retired. So if I, if I was to choose one, I would definitely choose that one. Nice. And you'd get to uh, you get to visit uh, the Kazakh steppe as well at the same time, which which would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so moving on, I suppose to a slightly more uh, sensible question. Then in that case, um, could you actually tell us a little bit about what SpaceForge does um, and some of the opportunities that you're looking to gain from from working in space? Sure. So SpaceForge, at our heart, we are a company that is developing satellites that go into space for the purposes of making new materials that you cannot make on Earth. And then we bring those satellites back to Earth to reuse them and launch them again. So it's a new market. There's not many people in this market currently. Um, but why do you want to make things in space? So th there's three main reasons. Uh, basically, Earth is not a very good place to make things. Um, you know, it's, it's a great place to live, but when you're trying to manufacture high quality products, there's a lot of problems. The first one is gravity. So gravity is a big issue if you're trying to make alloys of different materials. Say if you want to make, I don't know, a lead aluminium alloy. Don't ask me why, but if you wanted to, uh, you would melt those two metals, mix them together. But of course, on Earth, the lead would sink to the bottom and the aluminium would sink to the top and you'd have bubbles and you wouldn't get a very good um, homogenous alloy. Um, so that's one problem with gravity. The other problem is uh, contamination. So on Earth, particularly atmosphere is it's great you know we have lots of oxygen which is a fantastic thing for us humans but when you're trying to melt metals it's it's a bit of a pain because oxygen gets in uh, particularly if it's hot it oxidizes and makes the material more brittle and more likely to crack um and then thirdly extremes of temperature so on earth you know if you go to the coldest of the cold uh, you can get maybe minus 40 minus 50 and if you go to the hottest desert you can get maybe plus 50. So if you want beyond those temperatures, um, either for really high temperatures for melting metals or like in a furnace, uh, you need to get to special materials and special methods. And of course, the atmosphere doesn't really like making things that hot to try and steal the, the heat away. And if you want to go really cold to like close to absolute zero, you have to use cryogenics, uh, which can be quite difficult and expensive. So, but if, if you go to space, what do you get? So the you have a microgravity environment, which is fantastic. So that alloying problem I mentioned before goes away. You have free access to an ultra vacuum. So if you go 500 kilometers altitude, a little bit above the International Space Station, you have yeah, what's considered an extremely high vacuum that you'd need multiple stage vacuum pumps to achieve on Earth. And you can get access to, to very cold temperatures. If you just point out to cold space, you can get close to about 10 degrees above absolute zero. So on Earth, you, you can re recreate all those things. You could have a parabolic flight on a plane that would give you 30 seconds of microgravity. You could have vacuum pumps that would give you ultra vacuum and you could use cryogenics to give you super cold. And you could maybe have two of those. Yeah, you can have a cryogenic vacuum pump, but that's very expensive. Or you could maybe put a vacuum pump on a parabolic flight, uh, but you could, it's, getting all three of those is extremely hard. Uh, but space, they're basically there for free. So space is like the perfect factory for making new super materials. And that's what we're developing is a, is a small, uncrewed, autonomous satellite that will go into orbit, make new alloys, make new electronics, look at new drugs, new pharmaceuticals, um, carry out research, and then return complete back to the UK 
uh, where we can then extract the materials and then launch it again and actually start to do go move from research and go into production. That sounds incredible. So how far along are you in the process of building or uh, set, setting off, as it were, a, a satellite into space to, to take advantage of these um, properties? So where are we? So we are developing our core technologies. So we're developing, we're prototyping the manufacturing payloads we want to fly. Uh, we are testing our re-entry technology, so our heat shields. Um, we're doing experiments where we're testing our landing system. So we're dropping it from drones and balloons to see uh, how we can do the soft landing. Um, and it, we're yeah, very pleased to announce that recently we had uh, an announcement from the U European Space Agency that they were providing uh, funding for our very first mission, which we expect to be taking off late next year. Incredible. Sounds like really exciting times at Spaceforge. So if I can ask maybe a question which brings space back into more of a day-to-day -day context, you've obviously been talking now about really, um, really high-tech uh, or, or niche kind of implementation of, of space and space exploration. But how does space actually impact our daily lives? Yeah, I, I, it's, that's an interesting question. I think if you'd asked that 10 years ago, uh, I think more people would have not really recognized the impact of space on their daily lives. But I think today people probably have a better better idea of how it happens. I mean, the, there's the obvious one, which is satellite navigation gets us to where we need to go. Uh, certainly, I would not be able to navigate around Bristol and, and Cardiff <laughs> without it. It's a, it's a lifesaver. Um, that's the obvious one. But there's the side effect of navigation as well, which is the timing signal, the really accurate timing signal it produces, which is used in a, an enormous number of applications, particularly in banks and, and other kind of systems like that, are, that require extremely high precision timing. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. Um, um, Dinesh, I'll look to bring you into the conversation at this point. Um, again, so like Andrew, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in, in space? Sure, sure. Um, so in terms of my background, aerospace engineer by trade, I did a master's in space studies from the International Space University, which was, by the way, an amazing experience and recommended to anybody. Um, and over the years, um, like Andrew, I've also worked uh, with companies out across Europe and within the UK, um, both large and small. Um, and more, most recently, over the last seven to eight years, I've been working within the aerospace and defense sector um, Consulting-wise, um, uh, the last of which has been within PwC. Brilliant! And I'm really excited to hear about the International Space University. I want to hear more more about that at some point. Um, so we heard um, a little bit from Andrew earlier, who touched on kind of mentioning the UK's sort of uh, space economy, as it were. Um, from your perspective of working with a variety of different clients across the industry, um, I suppose what does the UK's space industry look like? Um, so the UK space industry is involved in a variety of things. We've actually been involved in lots of the European major programs from uh, Earth observation to more recently, we were involved uh, quite closely with Galileo until Brexit. Um, so as a result, we've, we've developed a lot of skill set and unique skill sets within the UK, uh, both within sort of R&D markets, but also more commercially in terms of broadcasting and um, creating scientific hardware and robotics uh, for space exploration. Um, so when you look at the upstream and downstream environments, which is often commonly the language we use, which is 
building of, of space equipment versus using, uh, in terms of customers' use of the, uh, what's being developed. Um, we are known more globally for our small, small satellite expertise. Um, and Andrew would probably agree with me that that, that, that is the case. Um, um, we've had companies like Surrey Satellite, which have been at the forefront of developing small satellites for almost 25, 30 years. Um, and on the back of that, we've developed uh, lots of experience and skills within that sector. And more recently, we have started to look at um, launching these small satellites from UK soil. Um, that is something that we're now starting to, to look at and develop. Um, we've um, just recently uh, launched new regulations that allow safe space flight to, be, to occur oh. from the UK soil which will support um, both Richard Branson in terms of his endeavours around Virgin Galactic, uh, but also allow us to launch small payloads from the UK soil. Um, so that gives you an, an idea of where the market's going in the UK. Um, one of the areas of specialisms more, most recently is around space debris removal. There is a company uh, out based around Oxfordshire that is specifically looking at um, removing the clutter that we have in space at the moment. Yeah. Um, given the access to space is becoming cheaper, uh, there is more and more satellites being put into space. So we now need to clean up the mess to make sure that the, the new things that we launch remain safe um, and operational. Um, so that's again an area of expertise that we have within the UK. So quite niche, quite unique, but something that's of high impact, high value um, more globally. Yeah, sounds like really, really interesting um, developments going on there. Um, and I, I believe 2021 has actually seen the publication of the UK's first space strategy. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what that contains or some of the goals it outlines? Um, sure. Um, so in terms of the space strategy, it's the first time the UK government is bringing um, commercial and defence space together. Um, the idea being um, if, if both industries have a common goal and common target, it allows us to invest um, monies in the right area so that we're getting the right outcomes, both in terms of benefits to the end user, um, but also developing the capabilities and skills that we require within the UK. Um, and to that extent, they've got sort of largely about 10 sets of goals um, aimed at increasing inter international partnership for one. Um, we are still and actively involved with the European Space Agency despite, despite Brexit. Um, we have had lots of successes as a result of that relationship and we recognise that. So there is a continuation uh, or continued theme around maintaining that relationship and working on large programmes within Europe um, and providing our expertise there. But we've also started to forge new ones. So we've got the Australia uh, UK Space Bridge. That's an example of us working more closely with our Australian partners around the space sector. And we're also looking at creating similar sorts of relationships um, with US and other, other countries. We're also starting to put front and centre space power. So that's quite a new concept. Um, but we're able to use satellites, who, which is out, out in space, pointed to the sun, you can have them pointed in that direction 24-7 and you can transport the energy back to Earth. Um, so that's a, a, a concept that we are looking to, to capitalise on um, and develop more, more maturity around. 
Um, similarly, there is intent to do more defence-related activity as well. That supports UK interest. Clearly, um, one of the things Andrew spoke about was um, how space is used in our daily lives. Clearly, an outage or disruption around those things would have a huge impact on the UK economy, but, to, but our way of life as well. So as a result, the defence strategy, which is due to be released soon on the back of the UK space strategy, will we'll look at the sorts of programmes of work the UK government want to do to protect that interest of ours. Nice. Sounds like there's a lot of collaboration going on and looking for opportunities where, where the UK can really build on some of these niche capabilities that we have. Um, so you mentioned defence there, and not to get too Star Wars, but um, are there threats posed by, uh, by space exploration? Are we going to see sort of laser beams shooting out from satellites to, to burn down cities, or is that, is that taking it all a step too far? Andrew, I can see there laughing down the line. I don't know if he wants to, he wants to comment on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't, yeah, you don't need to worry about laser beams from space. Um, <laughs> not very efficient, but uh, yeah, the defence, I mean, the, the uh, certainly I mean, there's been a lot of news about the, the formation of the U.S. Space Force, uh, and that is because the U.S. has uh, acknowledged that, well, they've always acknowledged it, but now they're really, really trying to um, to project the strength around how they're going to protect their space-borne assets, like their missile warning systems, their communication systems, uh, and their, their observation systems that are just completely vital to, certainly from the U.S., how they fight a war in the future. Uh, but also, you know, there are environmental threats as well, particularly from the sun. Um, so the, there have been incidents in the past whereby very large solar mass ejections and flares have uh, disrupted human life. Uh, particularly, there was one, uh, uh, one event in the 1800s which overloaded a lot of the telegraph wires. Now, we've been relatively lucky that uh, in the last 150 odd years or so we haven't had an event like that um, but it is something that people are very concerned about because it really could disrupt disable and maybe destroy a very large percentage of the satellites we have in orbit which would obviously be extremely bad news for the reasons we talked about before not just from a defense point of view but also from even being able to navigate banks being able to do transactions uh, being able to, to do effective disaster relief and communicate so yes space defense uh, and there's also you know an element to that of asteroid defense as well the problem with asteroids is they are you know an event happening like that like the one say that killed the dinosaurs extremely low risk um but very high impact so when you do your your severity calculation it actually comes out quite high um interestingly your the chances of you being killed by an, an asteroid is about the same as you being killed by a terrorist attack or weirdly uh, about the same as you dying by falling off a merry-go-round that's what a scientist <laughs> told me once so i mean we're not afraid of merry-go-rounds we are afraid of terrorists how afraid should we be of asteroids but again the space force but also uh, on the larger part the un um, have done a lot of work and there is a plan for being able to deal with asteroids and, and the like in the future but yeah going back to the star wars scenario i mean there are very clear treaties about deploying of weapons in space um, that certainly the, the big nations um, that do work, work in space, including the UK, are signatories to. 
So um, they, everyone has agreed that deploying weapons in space is not a good idea and that nobody should be allowed to do it. So yeah, uh, you, yeah, you don't need to worry about giant space lasers from orbit. We need to worry about asteroids. That's <laughs> <the problem. laughs> I, you don't personally need to be worried about asteroids. <laughs> Just know that there are people who are worried about asteroids and are working on it, and they'll deal with the problem for you. It's not um, something you need to worry about in your day-to-day -day life. Okay. Well, I mean, I have seen the Hollywood films, so I'm just relieved to know that there is somebody working on a plan. So if the worst were to happen, we've uh, we, we've got a playbook to run with. So thank you for, uh, for reassuring us there. Um, so I suppose moving away from asteroids and hopefully looking a little bit closer to home, um, there's, there's been a lot of conversations around the possibility of, for example, like a lunar economy or um, uh, colonising Mars, for example. Do you think these are realistic probabilities? And if so, what would, what would some of the benefits be? Maybe Dinesh, I'll, I'll turn to you first and, and put you on the spot with that one. Okay, that's a very interesting question. Um, it's really front and centre at the moment. Uh, lots of countries are looking at the prospect of mining. Um, and in terms of the treaties at the moment, space is um, an asset for everyone and accessible to everyone. So as a result, when we start to look at mining, who owns what, what's extracted? So in order to allow people to have some rights over those things, um, countries like the US uh, interestingly, Luxembourg, as well as UAE, are looking at putting together regulations that allows them to, to actually mine mm. and, and continue to own the things that they, they manage to bring back. Um, but from an economic value perspective, um, the sorts of minings that we're looking at or have been looking at over the, the past 20 plus years has been more around bringing back scientific samples. They're not large in quantity. I think so far to date, probably um, brought back about one ton of material. And th those are sort of lunar samples, not necessarily high value minerals of any form. However, going forward, there, there is an understanding that like the moon or asteroids that um, Andrew talked about, there could be material of high value that we can use for electronic equipment and help with um, storage of energy, all of the sorts of things that we're trying to grapple with in our daily lives at this point in time. Being able to access those sorts of materials in large quantities would make this a viable proposition because we can see its daily use in our daily lives. But in the immediate sort of future, the main thing we can see is mining for, with the purpose of creating fuel. It allows us to access different parts of space rather than launching from Earth, launching from the Moon, where the gravity is lower, um, and being able to travel to Mars and other destinations. That's where I see sort of the immediate benefits uh, and impact. Being able to take large form mining equipment from the UK to the Moon, very expensive, very costly. The temperatures are extreme, um, and Andrew alluded to some of these already in his conversation. It's very challenging environment, very harmful to human beings to operate in that environment. Whether that's a sustainable proposition at this point, um, that's uncertain. And Andrew, would you agree with that? We're unlikely to see sort of big digger trucks on the moon at, at any point in the, in the near future. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 would, I would generally agree with Dinesh on that. Things like asteroid exploitation, you know, some people might see it as controversial, but I don't really see it as controversial at all because I'd much rather 
in the future, you know, humans are going out and strip mining an asteroid than say the Amazon rainforest. You know, it's, uh, and this does at least help us move towards a future where we're still maintaining the quality of life that we want and we're still being humans and everything that comes along with it without having to destroy the Earth's natural habitat. So I think, unfortunately, we are kind of approaching the end of the time we have, but I will put to you both a final question. Um, what are your personal hopes for space exploration in our, in our lifetimes? What would you like to see being achieved? Um, Dinesh, I'll, I'll put that to you first. Sure. Um, I kind of grew up in the era where I was watching lots of science fiction. So Star Trek was I grew up watching that. It's absolutely, I love it. Um, Stargate, all of those sort of programs. Um, and ultimately, the idea that we were able to overcome such adversities and send people to the moon, bring them back, and we've now lost that, that capability um, for the last 40, 50 years. We have been advancing in science exploration, but it feels like it's about time we send people back to explore further reaches um, in the universe to sending people to Mars or, or back to the moon. Um, so that's kind of where I'd like to see in my lifetime. I would like to see the ordinary person, just like Richard Branson, they're doing with the suborbital flights, having the opportunity to reach further out into space and have holidays there. <laughs> so space tourism is, is your aim at some point? <laughs> yes, that, that, that would be it. <laughs> um, and Andrew, the same, the same question to you. What would you, like to, what would you like to see happening in space exploration in, in our lifetimes? Oh, so, so many things. <laughs> uh, how long have we got? Uh, no, um, I mean, OK, so on the space tourism thing, I think one of the most effects it's been talked about a lot um, with space tourism is you know, why do it? Is it seen as expensive joyride? But actually, it's been said that um, there's there has, doesn't seem to have been an astronaut who's gone into space and has not been fundamentally affected by that experience, seeing the whole Earth underneath them. Uh, is supposedly an extremely humbling um, uh, perspective that you get. And so it'd be really interesting to see when more and more people are going up there and looking and seeing at the Earth and seeing how thin the atmosphere is, how that will be affecting them. And maybe these people will be policymakers and business leaders in the future and it might influence their decisions. So there's, that's a really important aspect to space tourism. But yeah, fundamentally, uh, my personal opinion is exploration is great, but ultimately, what is what are we trying to do with space? And I would love to, you know, my prediction for the next 50 years would be let's let's try and move everything we can, all polluting industry into orbit where A, it's more efficient and B, will be less damaging to Earth on the ground. That to me is is not it's not a pipe dream. It's actually makes quite a lot of economic sense when you get to the right levels of launch price and everything. And that's one of the ways that we really could help solve the climate crisis. It's not the only way, but it really would help. So it kind of exploration, but behind exploration should, should come that wave of um, utilization of what's out there. Brilliant. I think a really nice positive note to end it on there. Um, Andrew, Dinesh, thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, if our audience would like to delve a little bit more into some of these topics, do you have any resources that you would recommend? Um, Andrew, anything anything on your side? Yeah, so anyone who's interested in uh, certainly getting involved in the space industry, 
doesn't matter how old you are. I'd really recommend looking at um, both the UK SEDS website, so this is the UK Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Uh, so this is a, a countrywide wing of a whole global group of just people who are interested in space and just promoting it and understanding it and doing competitions and just meeting up and talking about it. So that's a really great resource. Um, and also, uh, if you're really interested in getting a career in the space industry, please check out um, Space Careers UK. It's a non-profit website which uh, really it, it, it summarizes all the jobs that are available in the UK and, and in Europe as well um, that would be suitable for people getting into the industry. And it's really good. Just go on there and just see the list of companies that are doing work in space. Um, it's a really long list. It's quite fantastic. That's what I recommend. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. And Dinesh, anything on your side? Um, I'll, I'll kind of leave with more where you want to get latest information. Um, so from a space perspective, my go-to sites tend to be Space Daily um, and Space News. Um, so if you're ever interested in seeing what are the latest sort of things that are happening both all, all across the globe within the sector, um, worth um, looking at those sites. Brilliant, thank you. And I will also just flag that for uh, if you'd like to hear more about what business can learn from space, then you can visit pwc.co.uk forward slash the new equation, where we're exploring vital lessons from the space race, from redefining the possible to the need for accelerated innovation. Um, so Andrew, Dinesh, again, thank you so much. I think that was a really fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed this episode. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it too. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series so you can join us for our next episode as well.